Before we begin, if you're not already listening with headphones, we encourage you to do so now to get the full experience of the soundscape discussed in this episode. I'm driven by, I think, a social justice position of, yeah, of wanting to at least be able to imagine a world that's different to the one that I'm inhabiting now. And I think with performance, for however long a performance is, if it's 30 minutes or an hour or five hours, in that time to say this is possible, you know, it, it's possible to, to have other realities not only acknowledged but also created. So I'm, I'm driven by that kind of need to see something else. My name is Donna Gugama, and I'm a visual artist uh, working predominantly in performance, but I also produce works, texts, videos, sound pieces. Performance is, is the lens through which I kind of view and interpret the world, but the outcomes can be in any form or shape. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, this is the ICA podcast, where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 2, featuring visual artist Donna Kukama. We're doing things a bit differently this season by focusing each episode on a single performance. And in the introductory episode, you can get a glimpse of the seven artworks we'll be exploring over the course of this season. Today, we enter into the immersive world of Dana Kukama's 2018 performance, We the Not Not People, Things Done, Not Told, Inscribed, Not Written. Like many of Kukama's site-specific interventions, We the Not Not People has been performed only once, at the Maitland Institute, which is a residency and exhibition space with concrete floors and high ceilings that's located in an industrial area of Cape Town. It was in this large resonant room on a windy afternoon in September 2018 that Kukama moved between a series of carefully curated stations using different materials, objects, sounds and gestures, and evoking a multitude of voices at each one, in a work that reflected on oppression and violence, but also, as we'll hear, on healing. We the Not Not People is part of a broader, ongoing body of work that Kukama calls a history book for those who absolutely need to be remembered. It's a history book that's not limited to physical texts or a fixed chronology, but takes the form of performances, interventions and installations. And it began from a very South African context, um, which had to do with with monuments. Yeah, so I began questioning, you know, whose memories are preserved, how they're preserved, how they are protected. And for a while I was kind of working counter monuments. 
But when, when the history book began, which I'm working on, it was for me a shift from countering, but to rather say, well, how, how can we remember and, and how is it that we want ourselves to be remembered? What would a memorial look like? And, and performance art became a sort of interesting way to think about history. Kukama's ephemeral history book began in 2015 by looking at singular and collective experiences of violence and oppression inflicted on black and indigenous bodies. And since then, it's unfolded as a series of non-chronological chapters, like Chapter C, The Genealogy of Pain, performed in Sao Paulo in 2016. Chapter Y is Survival Not Archival at the South African National Gallery in 2017. And Chapter Q, Dem Short Short Falls, in Amsterdam in 2017 and 2018. We the Not Not People is titled differently because it was conceived not as a chapter in the book, but as a kind of cover for the history book. What I was interested in was how it was, yeah, it was an experiment on how the book could be held together. So it includes moments, or it references moments from previous chapters. So it was, yeah, it was really like, how do you, what does a book cover for a book that speaks about these things look like? In today's episode, Donna Kukama explores how she began to answer this question through the process of conceptualizing and then realizing we the not not people. But we began with the question of naming and belonging. My full name is Widumelo Donna Kugama. Widumelo was a name that I got from my grandfather. And it means a mix of joy and contentment. Um, Donna was, in fact, a nickname that my grandmother used to to refer to me. Apparently, uh, there was um, a soap opera that she enjoyed watching, and one of the characters <laughs> was Donna. <laughs> so, so then when when she would play with me, she would sort of like use the name, and it just stuck eventually. My grandmother was one of the sweetest and strongest people I know. This ability to be both very, very gentle, but also intensely powerful was was something that I really admired about her. I grew up in, I mean, I was born in Matiging in the Northwest, and this was also during apartheid, so it was a homeland called Buputazwana. I went to primary school there and then sort of moved to Rustenburg. And from that point, I moved to many different schools, many different schools, mostly boarding schools across the country. Um, I had always been interested in art and I had always sort of thought of myself as a creative person, but growing up, I was also good at math and science. So, you know, I had a lot of pressure to, to focus on those subjects right up until the end. And, and it was only much, much later, um, after a year in varsity of doing industrial 
engineering that I decided, no, I actually want to be an artist and I then went to art school. Growing up in different places or going from one school to the next really allowed me to learn how to quickly adapt to space and to really, I think, always consider context. And just that in relation to my work, you know, the, the fact that the work is so site-specific, it requires a closeness to a community of people as part of my process of building up towards a performance. But at the same time, it requires a distance as well as a sense of not being attached to belonging somewhere. So there was always this certain type of nomadism of always moving, but always returning somehow to the same center. The center as as something that needs to be reached through collective experiences or collective voices. For those of us who were imprinted with fear like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid. For me, it was it was the immediacy. I think, yeah, starting with performance was accidental. I honestly thought I was doing something radical and new, something that no one had ever <laughs> tried before. Um, I was in art school and, you know, studying painting as my major, also photography and printmaking. And at some point I, I grew tired of, you know, the idea of representing something and it just ending there as an image. And I was also increasingly broke, so I could not afford the expensive art materials. Oil paints were super expensive and then they would take forever to dry. <laughs> so it was just, it was all of that that led me to a series of works where I would record um, everyday gestures, like swallowing. So I would have close-ups of swallowing or close-ups of breathing or close-ups of of myself um, blinking. And at the time it was like, yes, I'm going to do this as, you know, something new. I was not aware of performance art as a field or as something that had already been existing since the 1960s. Um, it was more like, you know, a response to a moment. And as soon as I began to to perform live, I think that moment really made me want to keep going back because then there was, you know, other people implicated. It wasn't just me presenting myself. It was also incredible because my body is there, because my body is present, I no longer felt a need to then make it a subject. It was like, okay, the body is there. You can see it's a woman. You can see it's black. What more do I want to speak about beyond sticking to a representation that is static. We the not not people, it definitely is looking at multiple oppressions, but but it shifts between like moments of 
histories of oppression to also kind of moments of celebrating, especially artists and writers who are black women. For all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. So as people enter, I'm a little bit off center of the room. I am sitting on a very small, what looks like a shipping container. It's a wooden box, but definitely used for transporting goods or materials. There's a, a microphone in front of me and a musical stand with a book. It starts with just the sound of the paper, like boom, 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 over time. And then once people have arrived, then I begin to read from the musical stand a series of sentences. We, the not, not me. That they go along the lines of like we the we the queer people, we the, the people, the women people, we the black people, we the and it goes on and on. And as I'm saying this between each of the people that I mention, I have a huge roll of brown paper that I'm squashing and it's also yeah, it's also kind of building up next to me, um, creating this tiny monument, which is also quite fragile. But the sound of it being squashed is important because it's quite loud and it's amplified. So you have this image of something that is slowly over time leaving a mark in the space. but very loud and echoing after each of these people are mentioned. As an opening to a book cover, there's, there's a kind of address that welcomes um, those living or dead whose, whose histories are, are being honored in, in that space. I definitely think of sound as um, as a way to embody presences or absences, maybe more absences. Firstly, it's it's the idea of the body, right? The the absent body being embodied by sound, and then secondly, it's also the sound as um, as a language that you know where like 
spoken language just fails where there aren't even enough words to to express a certain experience or feeling because it's just beyond what is um, okay for for humans to go through so so sound also comes in as a yeah as an expanded language for speaking of the unspoken you run, one runs out of words to address violence or oh, one runs out of gestures that that speak to to these violences and you know and, and one also realizes that they continue, you know, it's, it, it kind of becomes a trap that I was too careful to not fall into because I didn't want to become trapped in, in this cycle of only speaking about violence when speaking of marginalized bodies' experiences. I, I wanted to know also how, yeah, how we heal and how do we stay afloat, how do we survive? How do we begin to to change the narrative also, to own the narrative in different ways? And the memories of our memories. The memories of our memories and the memories of our memories becomes... Um, well, I guess it speaks to just like a way of dissolving, yeah, the fixed nature again of how history is thought of. This um, idea of chronology, you know, things beginning at one point and sort of being written in a timeline that is linear. And so part of the... Um, the structure of the history book is also that it's it's written in in chapters that are not in the right order, sort of hops back and forth, because it relies on memory and also like this idea of of relying on the body to tell the story and the fact that memory is already so and I, I don't want to say unreliable, but yeah, but it functions in a way that is not linear, so like how do you write histories of bodies in ways that use how the body translates experiences. And there's also like the idea of trauma that has been passed on generationally. You know, is that a memory of a memory of memory? Of and the memories that we will never forget. I had been thinking of Margana since it happened and I just hadn't found a form or a way of um, sort of translating or transferring the image without the sound of gunshots or without, yeah, without any of the, the triggers that come with what happened. 
So when I arrived at um, Maitland, there were these holes in the floor that were left by the artist who was there before for an installation. And immediately I saw bullet holes. So it wasn't a pre-planned thing, but it sort of like happened as I was gathering material, looking at the space, observing, scanning, you know, looking at all possibilities. So I spent time with those holes until it just sort of became like, oh, this is this is what this is about. I, I I wanted to to kind of think of what a memorial would look like for the miners who had been murdered in Marigana for asking for a pay raise of $12,500. And in that moment, I used uh, a jug, which was in aluminium or steel, and it was filled with gold glitter. So, you know, so there is a kind of reference to to the material like platinum or gold which one finds in the mines, but of course it's cheapened. I mean, I, I, from a distance also, like how the glitter was pouring out of the jug, it, it sort of looked liquid. So um, there's also a play with, with that, you know, like, okay, I'm not going to like splatter blood. I'm more interested in how, yeah, how other materials can transform to tell stories that maybe they were not made or intended to do. So, so yes, the glitter being both a kind of a, a material that closes the holes, a material that can float upwards when I blow air into it, it kind of like lifts, like um, one would imagine a spirit to lift out of a painful situation. I'm also um, listing the number of miners that had been killed, murdered by the government one times, one thousand and two times, and three times, and four times, 12,500. I mean, even the act of going back and doing this calculation repetitively um, becomes exhausting for myself because after each number I have to <laughs> blow. So um, so it's also like, yeah, this, I guess, this idea of a kind of physical repetitive labor that is not valued at all. Yeah, and it was important that going to this little hole and blowing in it becomes part of the way in which that story is told. And in the end, I think I have the whole amount, which is only a million something rands. Yeah, how these lives were just undervalued in, in ways that are unimaginable. A couple of bodies erased and half a million rands saved. Yeah, and the, and the repetition and the duration of that moment for me 
was really important. It was important that I don't rush, but also that I don't re-represent um, this constant image that we are faced with of um, black, brown, indigenous bodies violently splattered. And for me, that kind of ritualistic repetition and coming back to the number over and over again, over a period of time, became a way to hold the silence of the moment, to, to demand a silence for that moment. Plus more. I was interested in what happens when the question of death is addressed with breathing. But then the, the sound of breathing was not enough. So it was like, okay, maybe whistling. So the, the breath is also making a sound at the same time. It's a, it's a song that's often sung in protests in South Africa and it's been sung for the longest time. It, you know, its title is, is Senze Nina, What Have We Done? And after asking over and over again, what have we done? You know, then the song kind of shifts and says, our only sin is our blackness. Taking out the lyrics, yeah, it kind of opens up all the other spaces and people that have been referenced. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't say what have we done. Our only sin is being black, but it's just our only sin is being, basically. And the, the, the rest is a blank. So the 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 stomping just before the end, it's military or protest, and I I was trying to find some like a place in between, uh, in between the two. I didn't want to like jump doi doi because that's then very definitely protest, and I also didn't want to like march. Um, you know, military style. I'm not interested in being in perpetual protest. I'm also just like, you know, can't be stuck fighting all the time. So, yeah, so like, how we, where do we imagine a, a different place? A little need for survival. For those of us who were imprinted with fear, like a faint little line in the center of our foreheads, learn, learn to, be to be afraid with our mother's milk. For by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hoped to silence us. Audrey Lord was there, Bell Hooks was there, um, Grace Jones and a couple of others that, yeah, that kind of had to be strategically placed to, to lift the space again. Because like I said, I was, I was at a point where I was no longer interested in only 
stories of oppression, but finding ways in which the history book can float between trauma and healing. When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are, when we are alone, we are, we are afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard, nor welcome. Those last sentences that I read from the poem really, really resonate with me because we understand fear as being afraid of something or the other, but then that, you know, that internalized fear is just, is, is so beautifully articulated. It, the fear of even doing well, you know, the, the fear of being in a good place, the fear of not being in a good place. I, I find it, there's a kind of, there's a realness about the words in that poem that that I feel are part of many people's reality. You know, people that I've worked with in in making this this book. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak. Remembering we were never meant to survive. There are moments in the the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house that I often return to. And I think my overall approach is in that in that vein of like, yes, if I'm going to say I'm dismantling how histories are written or how memory work has been approached or who has been included and excluded, then I, I really need to make sure that the tools that I'm using to undo all of that are not are not the same. Otherwise I'm just like asking for inclusion as opposed to opening up other spaces for thinking things differently. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to end in a way that felt like it was not an end, but a continuation. I really wanted to, to have not a tadam, the end, because, yeah, because the nature of the work is to acknowledge that, you know, there is no closed historical book and the material was copper leaf and gold leaf and they come in books usually so I was just tearing from a, a gold and copper leaf book um, allowing the the wind to blow them in you know it's like very valuable expensive material but also quite light and fragile so yeah it was there was a way to think through value, but also to to allow a certain fragility to also be present. Because again, you know, do we need to make like these big um, objects, monuments, or, or can something as light as gold leaf floating become a a way of yeah of creating a memory of of someone? 
Lebo Matosa, a luta continua, a luta continua, continua. Patrice Lumumba, a luta continua, a luta continua. And the bringing in of names, yeah, kind of like also links to to the beginning, which is, you know, the beginning is more a bringing in of groups of people without naming, yeah, without naming each person. So the names also kind of coming back. It, it wasn't a list of names that were said once. One name or another one would just like break that linearity to kind of, um, yeah, to speak of a circularity, a continuity, but also gaps. I think I, I wanted to have gaps because the names are not comprehensive. There is no top 100 or top whatever number. <laughs> it, yeah, I wanted it to feel like something that is unfinished and can continue and can be added to at a later stage. But there's a moment um, just at the end before I leave where I had these um, yeah, well, pieces of copper leaf and, and gold leaf and silver leaf. And as I was leaving, I was calling out these names. And the way the wind interacted with the pieces as, as this garage door was opening, I think that was like um, an emotional moment for me. It was, you know, it kind of, it could have been even a piece on its own as, you know, as a durational piece. This, yeah, the moment where nature kind of lifted the work beyond, um, beyond the constructed environment that I had created. I felt a physical presence. It was like a moment where um, the image was supported by the idea of, you know, like of summoning these presences. It almost felt as though they were all kind of saying, we are here, we are here, we are here, we are here. The podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is produced and edited by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode features Smooth Stone and Capilla by Blue Dot Sessions. Join us on Wednesday the 22nd of December for the third episode of Season 2, featuring performance artist, writer and cultural worker Kopano Marocha. See you then.